my time in the middle of a manhunt for an escaped murderer, plus the Second Amendment Foundation's Adam Kraut on their fight against New Mexico's gun carry ban. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. No, the devil's got no All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com and a CNN contributor. You can head over to TheReload.com right now if you would like to sign up for our free weekly newsletter to keep up to date with what's going on with guns in America. You can also, of course, buy a membership if you want to get exclusive access to hundreds of pieces of analysis that you won't find anywhere else, as well as the ability to listen to the show a day early and appear on the show in a member segment if you'd like. Um, so this week we are talking about the big news of the week of really in quite a while, I think, the New Mexico governor's emergency order suspending gun carry rights of all kinds, open carry, concealed carry with or without a permit in the state's largest city, Albuquerque, and the surrounding county. And we have someone with us who is directly involved in the legal fight against this order, and that is Executive Director of the Second Amendment Foundation, Adam Kraut. Welcome to the show, Adam. It's nice to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Can you tell people a little bit more about yourself? Sure. Uh, so I guess I'm an attorney. Uh, I spent five years in private practice doing firearms-related stuff, both for individuals and the industry. Uh, when I first started practicing law, and then I moved over to the nonprofit world. Uh, managing litigation um, on a national scale for uh, the last three years before I moved over here to the Second Amendment Foundation, where I'm now the executive director and uh, still doing some of the the legal stuff, uh, managing litigation in addition to everything else that an executive director would do. Yes, and tell us a little bit about this case that you guys have filed against the New Mexico governor. What are the what's the claims you brought? What are the basics of this case? Sure. So the New Mexico governor issued uh, that executive order. And as a result of that, uh, the health secretary issued an order which banned carry. Uh, it was a direct result of the, the governor's executive order. Um, and that just flat out doesn't comport with the, the Second Amendment and the, the right to bear arms, uh, particularly if you look post Bruin and what the Supreme Court has said. Um, it just there's no way you can possibly square the two. And so the uh, order that was issued was for a limited time basis. It was for 30 days. Uh, but that still doesn't mean that there isn't, uh, in fact, like a constitutional injury that occurs just because it expires, you know, in a theoretically a short temporal period of time versus a, a law that could be there forever, if you will. Um, and so that was why you saw all these lawsuits, you know, ours and any other, I think, five current ones, um, and why they all sought temporary restraining orders um, because you're looking for quick relief from the court and you're not looking for something to, uh, you know, take a little bit more time to get that relief, particularly given the the short nature of that order. Mm, right. I think they're up to six now. I believe the NRA has filed one alongside a lot of the uh, elected Republicans in New Hampshire or sorry, in New Mexico as well. Sure. And uh, so, there, yeah, there's been a ton of action on this. And. Um, yeah, so what's the latest in the case? It's the, you guys have been able to secure that temporary restraining order, correct? Yes. So we, along with everyone else in those five, the five lawsuits, uh, there was a hearing for the temporary restraining order uh, about two days ago. I think now uh, the judge granted the TRO from the bench uh, and with a, a very limited written opinion that followed it. 
um, that just kind of covered the very basics of, yeah, I think there's enough here to, to grant this and kind of keep the status quo of people which should be able to exercise their right uh, with a uh, hearing for the preliminary injunction to follow on, I believe, October 3rd. Uh, at which point the TRO will expire, and then it'll just be a question as to whether or not he finds that, yeah, okay, I'm going to preliminary enjoin this uh, and more or less continue this restraining order against the governor while the case is litigated. Mm, right. And your arguments in this case were uh, basically that this order just straight up violates the Second Amendment. Now, the governor has argued essentially that you know the second amendment is not unlimited uh, that even her oath of office is not unlimited apparently uh and that she because she issued this emergency order that gives her the authority to sort of infringe upon the right to to keep and bear arms what is the 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 counter to that argument that these emergency powers enable her for a temporary period to to do this well, it, it just doesn't flat out square with what the Constitution says. You know, there's uh, if you look at the emergency powers um, that were enacted, uh, you know, after post Katrina, uh, there were instances of, you know, rights being restricted as far as uh, confiscation and also limits on people carrying in courts found that that was not permissible to do. Um, her usage of a public health emergency to to try to square this is is not something that, you know, passes constitutional muster. And you, you, more importantly, if you look at what the Supreme Court has said, like you, first, if you just look at the plain text of the Second Amendment, right, there's a right to bear arms. Now, if you look at the case law that's evolved from that, um, courts have said, OK, you have a right to bear arms and that right could be open carry or it could be concealed carry. And if the state restricts one or makes it more difficult to um, utilize one over the other, that that kind of squares with the Constitution because you still have the ability to do it. It just may not be the preference, your your manner of preference. Um, so if concealed carry is restricted, but open carry is allowed, you may not prefer open carry, but you still have the, the ability to carry an arm for self-defense. If you look at what Bruin said, it's like, yeah, you have a right to bear arms in public. And not only do you have that right to bear arms, the places in which the government can restrict that right is is limited. And they they specifically enumerated three places that were you know legislative assemblies, polling places, courthouses, uh, and they said that there's a common theme behind all of those. You know, and that's that there's comprehensive state provided security. So. When you just take that and you go, cool, we're going to ban carry and we're going to ban carry literally everywhere uh, in this county or in this city based on something else. It just it doesn't square with what the Constitution requires. And yeah, that's the basis for all of this. I, I don't think that the Supreme Court has weighed in on you know emergency powers and the ability to restrict gun rights in those circumstances. I know we had some cases. Uh, I mean, obviously, you, you talked about Katrina and the aftermath of that. And then there were also a couple, obviously, cases out of the COVID pandemic where they shut down gun stores and stuff. And I think the record there is a little more mixed. Right. So uh, what you know, I guess, um, do you foresee this becoming a major case that goes perhaps up to the Supreme Court? Or do you think this is going to be settled where it is now in the district level? I think that's going to depend from a procedural uh aspect as to where where the case goes um you know certainly questions as to when that order expires are there claims alleged that would allow it to not be moot um you know like seeking nominal damages the supreme court is a way to say has said is a, a way to keep a, a case alive after that injury has in fact passed um so it's going to be 
I think it's going to be questionable, uh, and it's going to be really questionable as to what the district court decides. Um, if the district court, you know, finds that okay, yes, the the governor did in fact violate the, the Second Amendment in this context and you know, these people's rights, um, it could result in the district court just issuing an opinion. And if the governor's office looks at it and says, you know what, and the defendants more broadly go, you know what, we're just not going to challenge that. We're not going to raise it on appeal. It dies at the district court. Um, and it's going to be a question, I think, really, of what the district court decides and then what the party found against decides to do. So it's hard It's hard for me to, to predict. And I think this one's less clear cut than if you took, say, you know, a state that passed an assault weapons ban. Where, like, they clearly want their assault weapons ban to, to stand and they're going to appeal that, um, you know, up at, at least maybe to the circuit court. I don't know if they'd be too keen on that going to SCOTUS at this point. But yeah, certainly. And. I guess, uh, yeah, that's one of the key questions here for for plaintiffs like you guys. What how, what are you seeking in terms of damages? How, how do you see this extending beyond that 30 day period if the governor sort of gives up on trying to enforce this? Is there a plan that you have to continue this fight on after that point? So the the relief we sought was, you know, obviously a temporary restraining order and then preliminary and permanent uh, injunctive release, as well as a, a declaration that, you know, it was in fact a violation of these people's rights. So um, it, we had nominal damages in our complaint, which would allow it to, you know, if, if the order expired and the governor took no further action as far as trying to revive it and keep it going, um, it would allow the case to continue based on that past constitutional injury. And, and you could, in, in theory, get that uh, permanent injunctive relief. Uh, and that would you know, theoretically stop the governor from pursuing this kind of uh, stuff again in the, in the future, going down this roadway. Um, what the governor will do, you know, she's been out there defending it. But at the same time, gun control advocates have been pretty keen on distancing themselves from from her on this one, uh, the, the the usual suspects, if you will, that are, are pretty vocal about uh, supporting any kind of uh, you know governmental action that uh, infringes or restricts people's rights have kind of said like, well, hold on a second, this this one's a bridge too far for for even us. Um, so I, you know, if that's the hill she wants to die on, I guess that's up to her. But I don't think she's going to find a lot of support um, from anybody externally saying like, yeah, you should really keep going on this one. Yeah, speaking of that sort of pushback she's received, uh, that that actually includes her own attorney general, right, who's also a Democrat, uh, who's refused to defend this law. And I'm wondering how that works out uh, in the legal case and whether you've ever seen something like that before with one of these orders uh, restricting guns. So I I can't say I've necessarily seen it in this context, at least not that comes to mind. Um, There have been instances in the past of attorney generals uh, refusing to uh, enforce or defend laws, defend laws that they don't personally agree with or they think that there are constitutional issues with. Um, I didn't see his letter, but I did see a couple of news articles on it. And, you know, he said, you're you're welcome to hire your own counsel to defend you on this. Uh, It's not something the state would be doing. Um, that he couldn't square it, you know, with the Constitution and that he is his oath of office that he took. Um, not only did he uh, take an oath of office swearing to defend the New Mexico Constitution, but also the federal Constitution. And he just didn't think he could ethically um, step in to defend this order um, based on his his oath of office. Uh, and I also saw in that article that apparently the governor wasn't asking him to do that. So, you know, I don't know, but he he made it clear that he thought there were issues with it from a constitutional standpoint. And, and I guess if he was asked, would not be interested in, in 
defending her order. How does that play into your strategy in this case? Are you able to take that sort of letter from the the state's you know highest attorney or some of these local law enforcement officials who've said basically the same thing about the constitutionality of this rule and incorporate that into your arguments in the case or, or that's sort of ancillary? I mean, it's probably ancillary. Could you do it? Sure. Uh, would it help support your position? Yeah, I guess to some extent. I don't think it's I don't think it's where you want to stake your flag. Certainly, you know, there's much better arguments that would come before it. So if you wanted to throw it in as a tertiary thing that, look, even even these people, uh, you know, the, the highest uh, law enforcement officer of the state is saying constitutionally this is problematic for you know, persuasive uh, purposes, you could do it. It would be certainly if there had been a, a written opinion issued by him and not just a letter to the governor, but a, a written opinion from the AG as to the constitutionality of an action, that would be more useful in that context. But here, I don't even think it's necessary because this is just so overbroad. Um, I, I think I think the you know, deck is already stacked enough that you could toss it in, but it's not going to it's not going to be the thing that tips the scales. Right. And. You know, when we're talking about the emergency order aspect of this, right, she's using this emergency order as the basis for issuing this suspension of gun carry rights. Uh, and she's arguing that gun violence has become such a significant problem in Albuquerque and the surrounding county that she needed to take bold action. Um, but, you know, when you, when you look at the actual crime rate there, you look at statistics from the Albuquerque Police Department, Murder is actually down significantly from the previous uh, year. The, through June, they've seen a 21% decrease compared to the previous period uh, in 2022. So uh, how does that stack up when, when you're going to consider these legal arguments in the case? Does I mean, does that matter at all? Does it like the fact that it seems to be perhaps based on uh, very shaky grounds in terms of whether there even is an, an emergency at play or, or does that even not uh, come into to, to the argument in this case? Yeah, it, should, it shouldn't matter. Um, if you go, I mean, if we go all the way back to Heller, Heller said that the test in second amendment cases was text as informed by the nation's history and tradition. And then what you had happened for, uh, I don't know, what was it? 13, 14 years courts went, yeah, that's that's great. We're going to we're going to apply this different test where it was a means and scrutiny test where they looked at the government interest and, uh, you know, what the, the stuff behind it was. And they, they landed on intermediate scrutiny almost always. It was it was almost never strict scrutiny, which was the highest um, tier that uh, the government would have to clear in order to justify its ban or, or restriction um, under that old test. Those statistics would have been relevant. Because the, the governor could say, well, look, you know, there is a crime issue and because crimes are being committed with firearms and there's a, you know, a high likelihood of uh, either serious bodily injury or death, that's the basis for this restriction. And it's justified because the government has a, you know, compelling or a, a very uh, vested interest in, uh, you know, keeping its population safe. Bruin reiterated what was said in Heller. No, the test is the text of the Second Amendment as informed by the nation's history and tradition. And if you look at the language in Bruin, it goes on to say that when there were problems that existed in society um, that have transcended, you know, the the generations, um, it's the, this is not a new problem. Look, 
put another way, like, you know, people people committing crime with firearms is not novel to the 21st century. It's something that existed at the time of the founding and all the way through. And when there weren't these restrictions throughout history, particularly at the time of the founding, which is the relevant time period to look at, you know, it's essentially that they considered this and they said, it's, you know, the Second Amendment protects this kind of conduct and these restrictions are not something that are constitutionally permissible. So all that to say, her using crime uh, as a justification, um, it, it doesn't fly for any number of reasons, including that's not the test we use today. And even if it was the test, if you if you were to look at the statistics, it doesn't support the proposition that she's offering it for anyway. Okay, so uh, sort of regardless of whether or not crime is on the rise or, you know, you can make a if she'd been in a better position to make this argument that there's an emergency, none of that really matters in, in your view as far as uh, whether this is a constitutional action for her to take just because essentially uh, any attempt to suspend carry rights for any reason is going to be a violation of the Second Amendment. Is that the basic idea? That's the, that's the basic idea uh, without delving too far into the weeds as to, uh, you know, are, are there some historical bases where it may have been permissible? Uh, if you want to talk about emergency powers and wartime stuff, you know, were, were certain populations disarmed? Yeah, uh, but that's that's really digging into the weeds. I think as a general premise, your your summation of it is correct. Yeah, and I actually maybe get into those weeds a little bit because you're, there is some tradition, I suppose, of disarming, um, you know, populations that, that uh, during the founding that were, you know, for instance, people who didn't take loyalty oaths were often disarmed during the founding. Um, but but that's not going to be historically analogous to just disarming everybody in Albuquerque, right, I guess, is the argument. Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's exactly right. So, you know, part of what also Bruin had said was that um, those restrictions, if they're not a dead ringer, and, you know, a lot of them are not going to necessarily be uh, based on changes in society for some things, um, that they do need to be historically analogous. And, and it needs to not be so far removed. So, for example, when you're restricting carry in parks, you can't necessarily rely on laws that restricted carry on, on somebody's land for the purposes of to prevent poaching. Um, and if you look at a lot of these cases, the historical laws that are being cited, the proposition they're being cited for, you can't extrapolate it and apply it in a logical manner without really doing some mental gymnastics just to say, well, we want to ban carry here or we want to ban this thing here. Um, so when you look at history, there were certain groups that were disarmed, particularly at the time of the founding, you know, those who were deemed loyal to the crown, um, they were a threat and it was more so in the sense of an insurrection than, than anything else. Not that they were going out committing crime, but it was an insurrection, you know, potential insurrectionists against the government. Um, so there were a few populations and uh, actually, uh, one of my former colleagues, Joe Greenlee has written extensively about this. Um, and if, I encourage any of your listeners, if they're all interested, he's written some very detailed things about these types of people that were uh, prohibited in the past and, and bars on these kinds of things. Um, but he really gets into the specific subset of groups that at some point in time were disarmed and the, the reason behind why they were disarmed. Um, so but to to bring it all home, those restrictions on on who are not historically analogous to just banning carry for everybody uh, by the city or in this county. Okay, and so 
Where do you expect things to go from here? Do you expect the governor to try and uh, fight this TRO? Do you expect the judge to issue a preliminary injunction on October 3rd after that hearing? Uh, do you think there will be appeals? Like, how do you see this ending up? Well, so the, the TRO is non-appealable, so that's going to remain in effect. Um, that preliminary injunction hearing, I think it's going to be a question as to what the state, if any, evidence, uh, well, the governor's office rather, brings to the table to try to justify it and whether any of that is at all um, appealing to the court for the basis of, you know, uh, not granting a preliminary injunction. Um, but I would say if a preliminary injunction is granted, I would I would be surprised if she appealed that order. Um not impossible, but I would be kind of surprised. And, it, and if that is granted, then I think, you you know, you might see the order expire. Uh, by that point, it's probably close to being on its way out from just a time period. I don't, I don't know offhand what the exact date it's supposed to expire is. Uh, and then from there, you know, we'll see how many of these cases remain alive based on claims that were made that would allow them to continue after that uh, order expires uh, and what a final judgment looks like. Uh, but I, I would be surprised. Uh, but I've been wrong many times before, so. Very well, may go up on appeal if a preliminary injunction is granted. <laughs> sure. And do you, I guess, uh, at the end of the day, right now it's blocked under this temporary restraining order. But I guess the concern is that, you know, if it expires before you get a preliminary injunction, a, a final ruling from the district judge, that perhaps the, the governor could try this again sometime in the future. Uh, do you expect, you know, some of these the you know nominal damages claims and stuff like that that you mentioned will end up succeeding in keeping her from ever being able to do this again? Or is there, you know, we're going to end up in a situation where, oh, it expired and we didn't get a final ruling from a judge. So it's still a little bit of an open question. So I think the way some of these cases were structured, it will allow for a final judgment on on the merits. Um, and I would be kind of surprised, uh, not to say that it's impossible, but I'd be kind of surprised if the if the governor's office doesn't really show up with anything different than it showed up with to the TRO hearing, if the judge doesn't either from the bench or very quickly after say like, okay, you know, preliminary injunctions granted, written opinion to follow. Uh, that's one way he could square it so that that you know, the, the restraint on the governor um, and, and the, the defendants from enforcing this, you know, would just continue on through. Uh, there would be no temporal lapse from it anyway. And what do you make of, I guess, the sort of uh, the rush to file cases in this against this ban? Uh, you know, there were so many people who filed so fast. And then the uh, combined with the backlash that you saw across the board from really all sides of the political aisle. And uh, and then the fact that this judge who issued the temporary restraining order is a Biden appointee. Like, what do you make of all this? It seems like she's run up against both a, the legal limits of gun control and the political limits at the same time. So I, I think every uh, all, the, all of those lawsuits being filed was a very clear indicator that everybody saw this as a gross violation of constitutional rights. And, and the temporary restraining order aspect of it really reinforces the fact that not only did we think that that was the case, we were so confident that we would get a temporary restraining order. When, and when you look at Second Amendment cases across the board, TROs are almost never sought, and they're <laughs> even less granted. Um, you know, preliminary injunctions, 
sought more often and more often, you know, than TROs granted. Um, so I think it was very clear to everybody looking at it from our side of the fence that there's issues here. Um, from the other side of the fence, you very clearly saw people going, there's issues here because they're publicly saying, you know, you have, you have politicians publicly saying that we don't think this is constitutional. What are you doing? You should back off. You have people that are advocates for an opposing viewpoint that are saying, this is a bridge too far. Like, really, maybe you shouldn't do this. Um, and then the judge being a Biden appointee, you know, that's <laughs> lawyers look at judges all the time when they're looking at venues and, and both sides do this, right? They want to find a judge that's appointed by the party of they think is most favorable to them. Um, it's not necessarily indicative all the time. Sometimes there's horse trading that goes on during administrations where senators will say, like, you know, we'll we'll give you this confirmation if you give us a yes on this vote. And there's some horse trading done. But I, I think what it really shows is that, you know, a, a judge should be looking at what the letter of the law says, and not what party they're from. Does it always happen? No, it doesn't always happen. Um, but here, the judge, I think if you look at his opinion, and again, it was very brief, but he says, you know, this is what Bruin commands. This is where things are. And based on that, I'm going to temporarily restrain the, the enforcement of this um, order until we're able to have a, a better hearing on the merits of the preliminary injunction. But all, all signs are, are pointing to like, this is an issue. Um, and so I think the governor is probably really out here on an island at the end of the day where she doesn't have the political support from her peers. Um, she has six lawsuits now against her challenging this. And she's been temporarily restrained in five of them already. So, I, you know, it's it's not looking great for her. And I would be surprised if the odds shifted in her favor in any manner. Yeah, certainly. And and speaking of that, I mean, that politics is a little bit like the NFL. Uh, by the way, the, the Eagles won yesterday, <laughs> beat the beat the Vikings too. No, uh, but it's it's a little bit like the NFL in that people copycat each other. Uh, when they see something successful happen. And so, uh, and perhaps they abandon things when they notice one of their colleagues is getting crushed over it. Uh, do you think that's going to happen here? I mean, uh, is, is this basically, you know, a, a past that's gone incomplete and you're not going to see it? Other governors try this move in the future? I think, you know, I, again, predicting the future is impossible. And I, I hate I hate trying to to do that, but I think this is one of those instances where it's so clear. Um, and to some extent, you could say, or, or you could just flat out say, you know, it was a political ploy. Um, I'm doing something. Uh, and clearly, she's trying to capitalize on the I'm doing something aspect of it. Something had to be done. Um, but I think you'd be hard pressed to see other governors who want to go down this particular pathway. Is it possible they may try to do something else using, you know, an emergency basis to, to restrict, uh, you know, a constitutional right in some other manner, Second Amendment right in some other manner that perhaps is a little more limited than this? Sure, any, I, I suppose that's possible. But I think such a just far reaching, like this, this goes real far. I, I would say it's probably unlikely, uh, particularly given how this one's turned out. Um, and it, it just as another point on that, you, you mentioned, you know, yeah, it replicating people copying. Um, I think a, a good place to kind of point that at is, is all these Bruin response bills, right? It, it, it's still on the issue of carry, but you have New York after uh, Bruin was decided it passed its sensitive places bill. You have New Jersey, you have uh, Maryland, you have Hawaii, and now uh, California. And they're all very similar to one another, if not you know, almost verbatim the same. And you would think that uh, 
they would look and see how these are going in court, particularly. Uh, and okay, well, maybe we should hold off and wait. And I don't know, sometimes it's a game of, well, I'm in a different circuit, and this circuit is probably more favorable based on past experience. So, like, let's just try it, or we've got nothing to lose. And at the end of the day, I think that is something to, uh, you know, keep in the back of our minds is that you know, these government officials a lot of times have nothing to lose. It doesn't cost them a dime. It's, it, we're, we're paying to fight ourselves. Our tax dollars are going to defend a, something that we believe is unconstitutional. And those of us that are involved in advocacy groups or uh, groups that you know file lawsuits, we're making donations and joining to fight our tax dollars. So, um, you know, just food for thought on that. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. And I, and I think it also underlines how unique this particular situation is because, uh, yeah, a lot of those Bruin response bills have lost in court repeatedly, uh, the early ones in New York and New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And you still saw other deep blue states follow their lead anyway, but it doesn't seem like that's how things are going to go with Governor Grisham's uh, order here, at least as things stand now. And so I think that's one of the things that makes it fairly remarkable. Yeah. Um, like I said, I, I think you'd be hard pressed to see somebody else trying to replicate this, um, at least in this exact manner. Uh, if, if it's an emergency powers thing and they may try to, you know, find some way to limit the scope um, possible, but I guess time's going to be the arbiter of whether anybody steps up to the plate and swings or not. Yeah, absolutely. And so uh before we head over to our news update here, can you tell people a little bit about where they can find more of uh, you and and the Second Amendment Foundation? Sure. So uh, me, nowhere really. The Second Amendment Foundation, saf.org, so saf.org. That's uh, our website. Um, you know, you can head over there. You can get updates on all our cases. Um, in addition to learning a little bit more about the organization itself, uh, the organization's on social media. So if you look for Second Amendment Foundation on Facebook, Instagram, uh, LinkedIn, uh, and then our handle on Twitter is 2AFDN. Um, and you can find us there as well. So uh, those would be the best places. Yeah. And of course, you guys have the Gun Rights Policy Conference coming up really shortly here, I guess, next next week, weekend, (laughs) isn't it? In Phoenix, Arizona, I'll be speaking. I'm sure you will be there as well. I will. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, Tell people tell people a little bit about, um, I guess, how they can uh, attend if they want to. Sure. So uh, the Gun Rights Policy Conference, this is the 38th annual one. It's a joint event between the uh, Second Amendment Foundation and the Citizens Committee for the Right to Keep and Bear Arms. Uh, and it's a really a gathering of all the um, scholars, lawyers, activists, uh, the, the, the people that are on the forefront of uh, Second Amendment uh, rights and, and seeking to preserve them and uh, restore them and expand them. Uh, so you'll be able to hear from a variety of speakers on a number of topics uh, dealing with Second Amendment issues. Um, if you are in the Phoenix area, uh, you can, again, head on over to our website, saf.org uh, slash GRPC for Gun Rights Policy Conference, and you can register uh, there. Uh, we ask that you pre-register because we do provide lunch. Um, if you're unable to attend in person, it will be live streamed. Uh, I believe it will be on, at the very least, uh, Facebook and Twitter and I think YouTube as well. Uh, and we'll be posting more information about that. I just off the top of my head, I don't recall all the all the links. So. All right. Wonderful. Well, I will be there. You'll be there. Hopefully people listening will also be there and we will see you guys in Phoenix. That's it for this week. We're going to head over to our news update now. 
All right, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for the weekly news update. I'm contributing writer Jake Fogelman, joined, of course, by Reload founder Stephen Gutowski. How are we doing this week, Steve? Uh, I'm feeling better today. We're filming on Thursday, and uh, I got back home Wednesday uh, night and uh, was able to get some sleep. So I feel I feel a bit better. Still a little bit, a little bit exhausted from this whole situation I was involved with uh, up in Pennsylvania, but uh, feeling a bit better. How about you? Yeah, I'm doing pretty well. I'm uh, pretty excited. I'm going to a really good friend's wedding this weekend. So got that to look forward to. Um, Certainly cheerier situations than what what you've experienced, which we'll get into later in the podcast. But yeah, well, we could get into it right now, actually. Um, uh, It was (laughs) a pretty insane situation that uh, that I just got done dealing with. Um, many of you listening have probably followed the news on this manhunt in Chester County, Pennsylvania. Uh, what you might not know is that that's where I grew up. That's where I'm from, Chester County. Um, I, I grew up in Downingtown. If you watch the podcast, you'll see this uh, sign over my shoulders from Victory Brewery. That's in Downingtown, Pennsylvania. That's where they're from. You, uh, if you're in the sort of Atlanta, mid-Atlantic area, you probably have seen them before. But um, that's where they're based, and that's where I grew up. And this escape of this murderer happened right by there in the Chester County Prison. I guess he was, it's not like a maximum security facility. It's, I think he was just there holding until he got transferred to another prison. And so he took that opportunity to break out. And uh, that, you know, initially I was worried, a bit worried, because that's Westchester. It's, I have family, friends who, still live down in that area. Um, of course, they're in a little more populated area, so I wasn't super concerned about it. And then it sort of dragged on for a while, right? It's, it's like, been like two weeks since he escaped. And um, and he stole a car, because I wasn't super worried at first, right? Because the farm where my mom lives is still probably about 45 minute drive, if not a little more than that, from where he broke out. So it wasn't, it seemed super likely he was going to end up there. And it's like, why would he end up there? It's a bunch of horse farms and, and woods. There's not really any uh, reason why he might show up at my mom's farm. But unfortunately, after he stole that van, uh, that's where he ended up. He drove up north to the area where my mom's farm is and he abandoned the van. Uh, and unfortunately on Tuesday, I got news that he had broken into, well, he, he went into someone's garage and stole their, their rifle. Um, and that was right by the farm. So, and they still hadn't caught him at that point. And, and so, yeah, I decided, uh, it was best if I took some of my guns and went up there for a while until they found him or, or he showed up on the farm one or the other yeah definitely a pretty scary situation one you're ta- like you said you're talking about a, a murderer that is convicted of at least two murders one in his home country and then one here in the states and mm-hmm. once you know once a weapon gets involved that's a pretty scary situation especially as you said he's right in the right in your neck of the woods so yeah that's exactly right i mean he it was bad enough when he was just out there on his own because he sure. stabbed his girlfriend to death in front of her children so he's pretty just disgusting person uh who also you know clearly preys on vulnerable people like he's murdering his girlfriend 
Um, you know, he's not a big guy. He's like five foot. And there was a lot of people making fun of that and all and whatever. But uh, but certainly seems like the kind of guy who might prey on uh, my my grandparents, for instance, who live across the street from the, the farm. Um, or even my, you know, my mom and stepdad are, are older as well. And so, and none of them have, you know, my, my grandfather has his old service pistol from when he was a cop, uh, but he's 90 years old now and, um, not as mobile as he used to be. So, uh, and, and, you know, it's just with that much space on between the farm, it's not a huge farm, right? It's a couple acres. It's a horse farm. They have three horses and some chickens and dogs and cats, but, it's not a working farm or anything like that. Uh, but it's still a large space to try and cover. And then the, my grandparents live across the street in their own house. So you kind of, uh, for one person or even for a couple of people, it's not, not easy to keep a watch over that whole area when somebody is out there. And so that's why, you know, I just, plus he had a rifle. It was a 22, right? Is what he stole. And they did when they caught him, he, still had it. So, you know, it was a threat the whole time, but he was even more of a threat when he had that gun. And while a 22 is not super powerful, it, a rifle, he can still reach out and, and touch you from far away with that. And if you're going up against that with a, a handgun, uh, even a one with a higher caliber, you know, nine millimeter or something, it's not a great, you're not, a, you're still at a disadvantage if he's far enough away from you. And so I brought up my AR uh, it's this AR here that you always see on on screen if you watch this on YouTube. And um, yeah, I mean, uh, and I sort of, the, the other big problem is that we all assumed that he was sleeping or hiding during the day and then uh, traveling around at night, you know, that, and that's why he wasn't being caught most likely because it's, it's easier to, to hide and people, won't spot you necessarily as well at night unless you know obviously the police that were out there with thermal and heat uh, all kinds of night vision stuff and they were using helicopters and planes and all this but he was still at large you know almost two weeks later so obviously that wasn't uh, a sort of uh, silver bullet situation where he would oh well we'll just immediately find him that's not how it works in a manhunt like that and by the time he got to the farm like, that area is very uh it's, there's a lot of places to hide, you know, whether it's in farm buildings, you know, on the outskirts of the farm or whatever, or in the woods. And they caught him in the woods. So, um, you know, it seems like he was done. And he said, I guess they've done interviews with him. And he said he was living off of watermelon and stream water. And and he was just, uh, he would, uh, like, scope out place before he went to steal something from it. He stole from several houses along the way. Obviously, he stole a car at one point. And he said his plan was to carjack somebody and try to drive to Canada, which is obviously not a very um, logical plan, but it's the guy's very desperate. He's going to spend the rest of his life in prison. He doesn't want to do that. Uh, and so I'm sure he would have been willing to do anything at that point. But um, yeah, so I just had to go there. And since we all thought he was traveling at night, that meant that I had to stay up and try and keep an eye out on the farm and my grandparents' house through the night, which was very stressful and difficult to do. They had, you know, and the, technically the farm was outside of the area where they had the roads closed. It was right on the edge of it. But 
they were, and they, you know, the police were saying, oh, he's, we, he, he's cornered in this area. It's a very large area, first of all. It's like Warwick Furnace is the name of the area. And um, so clearly they didn't know exactly where he was or they would have had him by that point, you know, on Tuesday when they were talking about this. And Tuesday night, they're flying helicopters and planes right over our farm. So it gave the impression that maybe they didn't know he was in, inside that area. Now, so they turned out to be right, thankfully that's where they caught him but uh that whole night was um was a was a huge ordeal <laughs> yeah <it> sounds like it <laughs> and yeah i mean and the this has been a problem on the farm before and i just hadn't worried too as much about it they have motion sensing lights have you ever had motion sensing lights yeah in the house i grew up in as a kid our back mm -hmm. area anytime something yeah. would go by the floodlights would turn on yeah exactly and they're very they can be very sensitive right oh yeah anytime a rabbit or a squirrel or anything went by it that thing would light or up like and... the wind blows too hard on a branch yeah. or something yeah and so that was the situation our our lights they had we have one on the barn which is right next to my, my mom's house and then we have one on the side of my grandparents house and uh they go off all the time you mm -hmm. know which is which is terrible uh for this situation <laughs> right because yeah. you know anytime one of those goes off it could be him trying to you know get in, get in somewhere steal something attack somebody whatever sure and so you know i was watching the phillies game at my grandparents place uh it's at night you know it's probably eight thirty nine o'clock at night pitch blackout helicopters and planes are flying overhead and and then their light goes off and so i had to take my gun and go out there my my ar and you know clear the area it was pine corners it was doing all the stuff that you learn to do when you take different gun defense training courses and and as you, the light using the light to shine into all the dark areas the little wood creek area right next to their place so he wasn't there, obviously, thankfully, but I, you know, I did that a couple of times, uh, throughout the, the night and, um, yeah, it was, it was awful. <laughs> yeah. I say that sounds nerve wracking. Um, <laughs> it, it, it really was. And thankfully they, they caught him at like eight in the morning. They had, you know, before I, I think I got maybe two or three hours of sleep. And at one point at like one in the morning, there was a uh, chatter on the, the police scanner about how they identified a heat signature in the, this area of woods uh, near where the sort of tractor dealer is by the, by the farm. And, um, but the problem was like, that, that turned out to be right. That turned out to be where he was. And um, which is great. However, it took him another seven hours to actually catch him after that point. So you, you, when you're in it, it's, you're not really confident that that's actually him. Sure. Um, and, you know, the, they had a dog that eventually found him, thankfully. A trained dog. I think he was a Border Patrol dog. They had Border Patrol out there. They had everyone, basically. ATF, uh, FBI, state police, SRTs, um, which, you know, I'm very thankful to those guys. I, I ran into some state troopers when I was grabbing dinner. And, you know, they were coming in from Pittsburgh. So you know, guys were coming in from all over the place. I think that dog was from Detroit, was stationed with a unit in Detroit. Wow. So yeah, they were bringing people in from all over the place to try and find this guy, and they did. And you know, I, I'm thankful for them. 
Um, and you know, the one other thing too, by the way, uh, we've talked a lot about uh, in this little personal segment of the show about, you know, my different guns and carrying in your guns and, and our experiences with, you know, trying out new carry setups and new guns and equipment and stuff. And um, I was super disappointed in my uh, Sig Sauer P320X macro. It was the same issue that I had before, but for people who've been listening for a long time, that came with a Romeo Zero Elite or whatever from the factory, right? And what was my problem with that when I first well, got it? I and, say you're a red dot guide in what the first couple of weeks or whatever it was. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And I thought, well, maybe it was just some weird thing from the gun sitting out or some of the battery was the issue. And so I replaced it. Right. And, uh, well, when I went to take that thing to go up to the farm, guess what happened again? Oh no. The battery was dead again, which sure indicates to me that it's not a battery problem. It's something wrong with that site. And, um, yeah, so I didn't, I used my old uh, Springfield XDS uh, 4.0 instead to carry around as my sidearm when I was up there as my carry gun. And um, yeah, super disappointing. I yeah. Even this AR, uh, you know, you really got to keep up with this stuff, right? Your guns that you're relying on. Uh, and and uh, this goes back to why people don't like smart guns. They don't like red dots. They don't like anything electronic, uh, even if they could see a, a value in it like this this gun here uh my ar that uh mostly sits on this wall and i use it at the range occasionally and no one not having a lot of people break into my apartment so i'm not employing it often for the uh worst case scenario purpose of it but i you know when i went to check all the light the batteries on this thing on the light and the red dot they were both dead and then the red dot when i replaced that battery with a new one the new battery also didn't work. And so I thought maybe the site was, it's a site mark, you know, not a very expensive site, but it hadn't had issues with it before. Uh, and then I, I guess it turned out to be the battery or something. Cause when I put another new battery in it, then it was okay. Uh, and it's still working. It's, uh, I don't love the setup cause it's one where you have to physically turn it on and off. Uh, now it, it had been sitting off. So I don't know why the battery died. It should have been fine because it hadn't been used in a while. But uh, I guess there's some phantom drain that goes on there, even with it off. And um, yeah, that was unfortunate. And the the just the same thing with the the light. It just needed a new battery. But you really got to stay on top of that stuff. Right? I would say you know a, you're going to run into some situation like this. I would say that's a that's a good lesson for for everybody that relies on these tools. For you know, you don't get to pick when you know, you actually need it for its worst case scenario mm -hmm. purpose. And you, you better hope that your stuff's maintained and, or, or it's quality stuff that will hold up. Because like you said, you don't, you don't get to pick when you actually need it for the worst case scenario purpose. So. Right. And this was a, and I mean, it was in a lucky situation in that sense that I was able to check this stuff before I went sure. out there. Right. Whereas if somebody was breaking into my apartment, now the gun still would have worked. It's still a gun, um, yeah. but I wouldn't have had the red dot and I wouldn't have had the light <clears throat> if I'd been in a situation where I needed the rifle at home. But, uh, yeah, so that's just uh, reinforce that whole basic principle of maintaining your gear and checking it fairly frequently to make sure it's still operating properly. Um, so, you know, a lot of lessons taken away from it. Luckily, nothing bad came to pass. He wasn't able to attack anyone else and he never made it to my farm. He made it real close though. 
Yeah. Real close. Way too anyway, close for comfort. <laughs> that's for that's for sure. Uh, but so what do we got this week in terms of uh, news stories? What headlines we have? Sure. Yeah. So links in the newsletter. Uh, we have a story from the local PBS affiliate in Philadelphia because the Pennsylvania Supreme Court just heard oral arguments in that the city's challenge to Pennsylvania's preemption law. So I don't know. what What is this? The 25th challenge of Philadelphia against that preemption law. It's It's sort of an ongoing saga that... That will just keep going until there's a final decision made, I think. Yeah, yeah, they do it all the time. The problem, I think, for gun rights advocates and, uh, you know, Professor Robert Leiter, I was talking to him the other day about this, and uh, he might write a piece for us about this. Hopefully we'll see if he has the time. But he's really concerned about this one, or at least uh, thinks it's extremely notable because <clears throat> the issue is the the essentially it's Pete, Philly is arguing that um, the the, the city has like a duty to protect its citizens and uh, therefore it has like a right to pass these gun control laws uh, beyond what the state allows them to do. So it's, it's a very novel argument about um, that the city itself as an entity has a right to um, pass these laws and the state is violating its rights with this state law that prevents them from doing it. So um, I, there's never been a ruling that I'm aware of that was in line with this argument. However, uh, and that, there still might not be after this case. There was, uh, I think, Firearms Policy Coalition live tweeted this argument, and it didn't sound like it was going well. Now, that's a gun rights group live tweeting it. So they're usually fairly reliable on those, uh, on just, you know, relaying what's happening in an oral argument that they, they live tweet, but obviously they have a point of view uh, as well. And the main concern you would have as a gun rights advocate for this case is that they took it at all, right? Because the lower court, uh, I believe, ruled against Philadelphia. Yeah. So there's some, that's one of the things when you're reading tea leaves with, with you know, the top court in a state or the Supreme Court of the United States whether they take a case at all, it can be an indication of how they might rule on it. And the thing with Philadelphia Supreme Court, or sorry, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, is that it's an elected court. And while the, I believe the campaigns are nonpartisan, they still line up fairly straightforwardly with the parties. And sure. I believe the split right now is four to two in favor of Democrats or Democrat aligned judges, justices there. So, you know, that that gives you pause when you consider it just from the practical tea leave, tea leave reading side of things like maybe they will side with Philly. And if they do that, it's going to be a huge deal because, first of all, Pennsylvania has thousands of localities. It's fairly unique in that regard, like it has way more local government divisions than most states do and if they're all able to just pass their own gun restrictions it's going to become a real mess up there if you're trying to travel around in pennsylvania yeah because philadelphia will pass every gun restriction oh, yeah. you could imagine they already do that without the authority to do it so we're going to definitely keep an eye on where that one goes for sure yeah, that sounds like Colorado. Colorado is the same way with we have they call them like metro districts and special districts. And there's, like you said, thousands of 
tiny individual governments that because Colorado repealed its preemption law, they now have the authority to pass their own yeah. gun laws. So it could be and a similar did. situation. Yeah. And right. they have we saw yeah. that they now they've had a number of them have had their laws enjoined because they passed their own assault weapons bans. Right? I say Bruin is the caveat, obviously, to all of this yeah. because of the Bruin test. But so be a, a big situation. We'll keep on top. But it's of easier sure. to challenge one state law than it is to challenge a thousand local oh, yeah. ordinances. That's absolutely. Uh, so the next story we got comes from the Courthouse News Service. Uh, it's about a pretty interesting ruling out of the Ninth Circuit uh, that they heard an appeal of a, an injunction denial from a lower court where some gun rights advocates were challenging California's open carry ban. Uh, and the Ninth Circuit ruled that that court did the preliminary injunction test wrong, apparently. Uh, so he essentially ordered it to rehear it. And you talk about reading tea leaves with judges. They don't really say it explicitly, but anytime a judge or a higher court sends something back to a lower court and says, do this again because you did it wrong. It's in so many words is saying basically rule the other way. Uh, so yeah, sort of an interesting usually. thing that might happen in, in California with open carry. Yeah, that is fascinating. We'll, we'll have to keep an eye on that one as well. Yeah. And then the last link we'll hit today uh, is a, a similar story to one we've covered in the past where the NSSF has been challenging some of these this new wave of state laws, uh, trying to make it easier to sue the gun industry for crimes committed with firearms by third parties, usually under some sort of public nuisance statute. So this case is, uh, is covered by Reuters. Um, it's out of Delaware. And in this case, once again, a judge dismissed it because the, he said that the uh, NSSF doesn't have standing because it hasn't been mm -hmm. enforced yet. So it's kind of this weird in-between state that we're all stuck in with these laws because these states have these laws on the books, but they haven't enforced them yet. And so judges are saying, well, there's no injury, can't challenge it. Yeah, that's a significant hurdle for the industry because uh, these laws obviously implicate gun businesses, but it seems like some of the, the judges in these jurisdictions are requiring them to wait until somebody's actually been sued over this stuff before they can uh, bring these kinds of, of challenges to the constitutionality of the law. But uh, the last thing we're going to talk about today is, you know, the main interview, we, we talked about the, the legal side of the New Mexico um, governor's emergency order banning is basically suspending gun carry rights, uh, at least in Albuquerque and the surrounding county. Um, but I wanted to talk a little bit with you about your piece. You have an analysis piece for members that looks at the politics of this situation. So what, what's your basic thesis here? Yeah, so I think the politics of this one in particular are fascinating. Um, you know, this kind of ties back to our discussion about Philadelphia and the preemption battles. It's not an uncommon thing to see left-leaning or progressive or gun, however you want to phrase it, gun control supporting politicians, whether they're at the local level or the state level, really push the envelope when they enact some sweeping gun policy. Um, so, for example, Philadelphia all the time tries to pass its own either carry restrictions or assault weapon bans or what have you, even though state law explicitly prohibits them from doing so. And they know they lose in court all the time, but they do it anyway because it's a very progressive city. The Democratic City Council or the mayor or whatever who enacts these policies isn't going to get punished for doing so. So it becomes a political victory for them. Same thing with California and New Jersey when they pass these brew and response bills that have been enjoined several times by federal judges, but it doesn't matter because to their voters, it looks like they're you know doing something for, for gun violence. And what I found fascinating in this case is you have a, a Democratic governor in a reliably blue state, New Mexico, doing something similar, a very out, out there gun policies, taking a, a bold stand against gun violence in Albuquerque. 
But instead of praise, she's received almost unanimous uh, criticism from even members of her own party. Yeah, you've seen her own attorney general say that he's not going to defend her in court. Uh, yeah, letters have pretty, come. That's that huge, right? That's huge. Yeah. And both chambers of the legislature, there's been lawmakers, Democratic lawmakers that have issued letters and public statements saying that what she's doing is unconstitutional and they can't support it and that she should rescind it. Uh, you have national gun control figures like David Hogg from March for Our Lives. You have the Democratic uh, representative from California, Ted Lieu, calling her unconstitutional, what she's doing unconstitutional. So I think that's it's, it's definitely a turning point where I, there seems to be a, at least a limit to what these sort of antagonistic quasi-performative gun control measures. Uh, and clearly, you know, she's, uh, Governor Lujan Grisham kind of hit the wall when it comes to what that limit is. Yeah, it sure seems like it. Uh, they've, they've really set the new floor, I think, for the gun debate. Because, uh, you know, especially the comments from like Hogg and Lou, because they're effectively admitting that gun carry is protected in the Constitution. Now, look, this is something that the Supreme Court has explicitly said in Bruin. Like they said that, yes, the, the Second Amendment protects gun carry, but the gun control groups have by and large uh, taken issue with that. And many of them are still of the opinion that the Second Amendment is a collective right. It doesn't really um, do much of anything, frankly. But, uh, you know, the, it kind of shows you where the debate has moved now, which is interesting, right? Because uh, it in the 60s, most of those groups that existed at the time were for banning handguns. That was the big push at the time um, after, you know, the, the Gun Control Act passed and you had some of these other gun control laws passed. They were having a lot of success. And the next thing they wanted to do was ban handguns. And that didn't happen and has, you know, it became the new floor for a while, you couldn't ban handguns. It's extremely unpopular to try and ban handguns. Polling indicates it's, um, you know, it's like a 70, 30, 80, 20 sort of issue. And uh, so they, they, they gave up on that aspect and moved to other policies that, that they've been pursuing since then, assault weapons bans and universal background checks, things of that nature. <clears throat> and now, you know, you're seeing a retreat, I think, strategically from May issue laws, right? That those were struck down in the, the Bruin case, which were effective bans on gun carry. I mean, outside of a very small fraction of uh, applicants, most people couldn't actually obtain a permit to carry a gun in states that had that policy. And and then now they're they've moved to shall issue. And so um, that's sort of the new floor for gun carry like uh they they're uh, still opposed to constitutional carry right uh permitless carry constitutional carry is what advocates call it obviously and um so they're they're still you know you're at this point where they're <clears throat> oh, excuse me where they're at least willing to say that a total ban on gun carry even for a limited period because of an emergency order is is not something they can support and that, that is a change i think yeah no that that is that's a, a great point to make too because not only is it just calling out sort of the performative nature of the policy itself but it is a an acknowledgement that hey even the gun control side acknowledges there is a right to carry and you can't 
it's not something you could violate. Just like you said, many of them, or at least some of the some of the groups, want to relitigate Heller and all these other cases. But to, to yeah. see them publicly make statements saying that, look, there's a right to carry. You can't just toss that out the window on a whim. So it's, it's pretty big. It is. And, you know, I, I think it, it also comes from sort of the the hair thin nature of the order in the first place. Sure, you know, sure. This idea that there's an emergency in Albuquerque, uh, New Mexico, that justifies this kind of suspension of rights is there's not a lot of evidence behind that. You know, the governor cites uh, the murder of an 11 year old, which is obviously horrendous uh, and tragic thing. Unsolved murder, I would also note, is a road rage incident where, you know, nobody knows who that person was. And certainly there isn't any evidence there's a connection to people who have concealed carry permits. And I would I would venture to guess that it's very unlikely that that person who murdered an 11 year old had a concealed carry permit. Uh, they don't, you know, not that people with concealed carry permits, they're all perfect angels, but angels, but um on average, they're much more law-abiding than the rest of the population, uh, oftentimes even more than police, uh, depending on the, st the statistics that you're looking at. But uh, at the same time, if you look at Albuquerque's own crime statistics that they've released, you know, uh, crime is way down. Uh, murder, according to the Albuquerque's police department, declined 21% in the first half of this year compared to the previous year that so the idea that there's a gun violence emergency is runs counter to what the actual data says in the place where she's declared this so there's not really a lot of justification to stand behind as to why uh this was necessary to do she's kind of just saying it's there it's sort of there to send a message and I think arresting law-abiding or threatening to arrest law-abiding people for carrying firearms for their own defense is not a great way to send a message to anyone. Right? Right. It doesn't make any sense. You could already arrest criminals carrying guns because they can't, uh, you know, if they're a convicted felon or uh, if they have a domestic violence misdemeanor, you know, or they're, they're not, they're underage, they can't carry guns anyway. It's already illegal. You can already arrest those people. Right. So it doesn't really send any message to them. Um, it's just a, the whole situation very poorly thought through, it seems. And she didn't even do the footwork to see if her fellow Democrats in her own state were going to stand behind this. Uh, yeah. And clearly they haven't. Right. Yeah. The Bernalino County Sheriff himself said that he was shocked and irritated by the order because he wasn't consulted at all about it. So yeah. poorly, poor strategy, poor policy. And it's just remarkable to see how swift the condemnation was from all sides. And I think that's the, the, the fascinating political takeaway. Yeah, for sure. Uh, well, people can head over to the reload.com and pick up a membership today if they want to read the full analysis that you have uh, put put on our website there, or if they want to get the access to hundreds of other pieces of analysis that we have uh, that you won't find literally anywhere else in the world, on the internet, anywhere, just at the reload. So uh, sign up today for our free newsletter if you just want to get an idea of what we're like and then go ahead and make that jump into paid membership if you want to support our reporting and also get access to all of that exclusive content uh, you'll also get this podcast a day earlier and the opportunity to appear on the show in a member segment we'll have to do one of those again real soon but 
Uh, that's it for this week. We will see you all again real soon.